Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello, welcome to the Naked Scientist News Flash with me, Ben Valsler. This week, Chris Smith and Helen Scales will be bringing us the latest in science news. Coming up, just in time for Halloween, we hear about the world's largest web-spinning spider. And the females have bodies that are around four centimetres long, that's about an inch and a half, maybe the size of your thumb perhaps, and a bit bigger than that, pretty big. And their legs, believe it or not, stretch to around 12 centimetres, so I think that's a good hand span. How scientists have identified a bundle of nerve cells in the cochlea that make loud sounds physically painful. Perhaps this is a way for the brain being able to discriminate between sounds that are very, very loud and harmful or likely to signal there's danger in the offing and sounds that are very, very loud but perhaps not dangerous. Perhaps the wiring in the brain from these small cluster of nerve cells is slightly different. And the discovery of what makes spider silk so sticky. Uh, We believe it's two proteins, actually. One of them looks like a silk protein. The other one actually looks like what we call a mucin protein, which makes up slime uh, and snot. So our our combination is, is that it's really a silk and snot protein. And the two of them together provide both strength and stickiness. That's all on the way. First up this week, Halloween is approaching. And what better story to get us in the spooky mood than the discovery of the world's largest web-spinning spider. Now, this record-breaker, named Nephila Komaki, is a type of golden orb weaver spider, and it's found in Africa and Madagascar. And the females have bodies that are around four centimetres long. That's about an inch and a half. Maybe the size of your thumb, perhaps, and a bit bigger than that. Pretty big. And their legs, believe it or not, stretch to around 12 centimetres. So I think that's a good hand span. It really would sit nicely. The legs are 12 centimetres in span. No, that's a span. So, this is it basically, if you put your hand out, I think that's what you're looking at. It's about a spider that's big as your hand. It's really quite large. So, how big are the webs? The bit, the webs about me, about can go to about a meter. Yeah, there's a, I don't think we've actually, we don't know exactly how big these particular species can grow. But if it's Gosh. bigger than the rest of them, but certainly about a meter is what most. What, what do they catch? Spies. Birds, humans? <laughs> don't go near. I think it's smaller than that mostly. But um, but they're not the biggest spiders in the world. Can you imagine what the biggest actual spiders? Not well, the, well obviously, I mean tarantulas yes. can, can individually weigh. I mean, half huge. a kilo or something. They're, I mean, huge. they're huge, but spiders. they don't—they don't make webs. So Although they do they... make silk, don't they? Because I was talking to a guy over in California a few years ago. He actually discovered that some of these tarantulas do make silk, and they produce it from the tips of their feet. Uh-huh. And they actually make little bits of dragline silk, which gives them additional purchase on a slidey surface. And they discovered this accidentally by putting a spider on some flat glass, tilting the glass up, and then going to have a cup of tea. <laughs> and, and when they came back, the spider had slid a little bit down the glass and when they looked at the glass surface there were tiny threads there and the spinnerets on the back of the spider are in fact vestigial legs and the, and the glands that make the threads are the remains of those original thread producers from what would have been legs and the spiders so abandoned the legs, legs and just yes they did have more legs fantastic. probably well that's fantastic anyway well I think the goliath bird eating tarantula is meant to be the biggest one that lives in South America but they don't make webs anyway and this new discovery um, came from Machas Kunta from the Slovenian Academy Academy of Sciences and Arts and Jonathan Coddington from the Smithsonian National History Museum of Natural History in Washington in DC and they published this in the journal PLOS One this week.
week. And for a long while, they actually thought this species um, could well have been actually extinct. This specimen that was first discovered in 1978 was the only one for a long, long time. So they thought probably it was extinct or maybe it was a hybrid of some other species and that there weren't any more out there in the world. And these two guys really wanted to find these spiders. They went out on expeditions um, to South Africa, but they just didn't find any of them. And they went searching through museum specimens. Over 2,500 specimens were searched and they still didn't find another one of these enormous um, web-weaving spiders. Um, But eventually another specimen did turn up, one from Madagascar and then a couple more from South Africa. And that really did confirm that this is indeed a new species. And it adds a list of... um, another species of spider, to around 41,000 that we know of currently, um, spiders in the world. And apparently every year about four or 500 are added. So I don't know when we're ever going to stop finding new spiders, but that's, Gosh, that's a lot, lot of spiders, isn't it? It's a lot of spiders. They're an amazing group of animals. And... Um, and obviously it's very important discovery for biodiversity. For spider biodiversity, we found this fantastic big chap. But it also um, is really interesting when people want to study things about why certain animals get very big. In particular, it's the females of this spider that are very much bigger than the males, up to five times bigger. And part of the paper in PLOS One um, it describes, um, they looked at the family tree of these, um, these orb-weaving spiders and found that it's actually an African branch in which it's the females have progressively got bigger over time. So they think now we can really start to understand more about why sometimes females are so much bigger than males. And um, they're actually really keen for other scientists to go out and try and find these spiders. They're only known from one place that they've been found alive, and that's in the Tembe Elephant Park in KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa. So, you know, get out there, have a look for great big spiders, a rare wonder indeed, and a treat for Halloween, I think. Amazingly big. That puts a whole new spin on the meaning food web, doesn't it, when you have something that's a metre across. Incidentally, I think the reference from memory for the tarantulas making... Uh, threads of silk from their feet. I think it's Adam Summers who works in the University of California, San Diego. I think that's where he's based. It was a nature paper in about 2006, I believe. Now, also this week, and talking about the journal Nature, there's a, a wonderful paper from Paul Fuchs, who's uh, a researcher at Johns Hopkins. And he and his team have discovered uh, that there are cells inside the cochlea, the part of the inside of the ear, which converts sound waves into brain waves, which is uh, able to signal painful sounds. Now that's not just when you're listening to a particularly abrasive soundtrack and you say, ouch, that's painful to my ears. We're talking very loud sounds. Now what they did was to study the connection between the cochlea, this organ that has cells called hair cells that vibrate and when they vibrate they make electrical signals. Well, most of those signals get transmitted in a population of nerves straight into the brain and the brain decodes them. But about 5% of the nerves don't connect up to those hair cells in the same way. They seem to do another job but no one really understood what they did. And what this group managed to do was using young rats to study some of these individual tiny nerve cells by opening them up with a microscope and then putting an electrode inside the nerve cell and recording the electrical activity and also putting some dye inside the cell so they could then study how it was connected to other cells. And what they found is that this cell responds to a nerve transmitter chemical called glutamate, which is an excitatory chemical. And when the hair cells that that respond to sound put some glutamate out, they stimulate this kind of cell, but they only produce enough when the sounds must be incredibly loud right across a whole range of different frequencies. So what these cells seem to signal is when sounds are excruciatingly loud to the point of actually potentially being damaging or harmful to you, 
So on the one hand, you'd think, well, why do I need to know the sound is very loud and damaging me? I should know that already. But the point that the researchers make and that other commentators have said is that perhaps this is a way for the brain being able to discriminate between sounds that are very, very loud and harmful or likely to signal there's danger in the offing and sounds that are very, very loud but perhaps not dangerous. Perhaps the wiring in the brain from these small cluster of nerve cells is slightly different. Another thing they, they discovered is that these cells are responsive to a chemical called ATP, a purine, and this usually gets released when tissue is physically damaged. So some scientists are suggesting that perhaps this discovery shows that the brain has a sort of error-checking system in the hearing system. It can use these nerve cells to check the health of the inner ear and therefore know how to respond to sounds appropriately. But why this is really exciting is that no one ever knew and understood what this system did. Now we've got a way to study it. This might give us ways or an insight into hearing disorders, including tinnitus, which is when people experience this very disabling, annoying whistling in the ears. So understanding how the nerve cells actually connect in the ear could be really crucial to understanding why tinnitus develops and perhaps even better how we can get to treat it. There you go. So turn down your headphones, I think, is the, one of the things we all must do. But I'm going to take us back to the oceans and a really bizarre connection between some fantastic creatures called mantis shrimps, which have um, the most sophisticated eyes in the animal kingdom. And a brand new paper that's just hot off the press um, from a team of scientists who are examining just what lies behind those amazing eyes. And they've uncovered some tricks of nature that could find applications at the cutting edge of modern technology. And they might even spawn a new generation of DVDs and CDs. Well, last year, a paper in the journal... CD. Sorry. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, last year, a paper in the journal Current Biology announced the discovery that mantis shrimps can see both linear polarised and circular polarised light. And now a team led by Ro um, Nicholas Roberts from the University of Bristol here in the UK have discovered that mantis shrimps do this using a special light-sensitive cell area of cells in their eyes that act as a device known as a quarter wave plate. And essentially these plates convert circular polarised light into linear polarised light. And man-made quarter wave plates are vital components of DVD players and some camera filters. But they don't work nearly as well as the ones that have evolved in the eyes of mantis shrimps. Why not? Well, first of all, I think we need to get to the bottom very quickly about linear and circular polarised light. Normal light behaves like a wave and it vibrates in all different directions and linear polarised light only moves in one plane. Um, circular polarised light moves in a helix and it can go... And the amazing thing about shrimp, mantis shrimps is they can detect the difference between light, circular polarised light that goes left or right in this kind of helix. You can imagine it sort of moving through space. So that's what's going on here. And the reason that, uh, well, the re ultimate reason why the mantis shrimps do this well is because it's evolved through natural selection to perfectly be able to do this. You might ask, why do they need to see these lights? Indeed, what's, why, what's, it, what's it do for them? Um, it's a great question and a couple of different theories here. One is that where they live, which tends to be on coral reefs and shallow, bright water there's lots of polarized light bouncing around in that environment including off lots of things that they eat which are things like fish and um, the silvery scales of fish do reflect polarized light so being able to see that is good even clever and i think this is fantastic is what they discovered before in in that um, earlier paper last year was that parts of the mantis shrimp bodies actually reflect circular polarised light. But we don't think there's anything else in the animal kingdom that can see circular polarised light. So it's so a way of almost, finding each other. They've almost got this secret yeah. way of communicating, which is fabulous. So this could be why they need this. Um, the eyes work on a very small scale. It's the sort of micro-engineering, nano-engineering that nature can do that humans can't do so well. But perhaps now we can learn a thing or two from the mantis shrimps and, and uh, produce better 
um, optical devices in the future. But it's just, they're such great creatures. When you, I've seen them in the wild, mantis shrimps, and you can see their eyes looking at you and wondering, because they've got trinocular vision. It's, in each eye, it's extraordinary. And you just wonder, what do I look like to the mantis shrimp? <laughs> I was in a garden centre today uh, looking at the fish swimming around in the aquarium section. And there was this spider crab sitting under a sort of log underwater and it was looking at me. And I always think that, you know, what, when they're looking at you with these eyes, I mean, what, what are they actually what seeing? They what see? do they make of the person on the other side of the exactly, glass? Exactly. In my case, probably they think I'd rather that person wasn't there. <laughs> uh, well, also in the news this week, scientists at the University of Wyoming have identified what it is that can make spider webs so sticky and the genes that spiders use to actually make them. And knowing this could bring us a step closer, maybe even a spider step, I don't know, to making our own spider-based glues. And to tell us a bit more about how they're doing this is Dr Randy Lewis, who's at the University of Wyoming. Hello, Randy. Hello. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Tell us, so how are you, first of all, identifying these genes that spiders use to make their webs, webs so sticky? Well, we took uh, webs, about 100 of them actually, and washed the glue off of those webs. Then we separated the proteins that make up that glue. And uh, using some chemical tricks, we were able to uh, get some evidence of the uh, proteins that were in there. And then we did a, a mass spectrometry study of all the peptides to find those and then uh, use that information to go back to the spider itself and identify which were the genes that were involved in making the spider silk proteins. I see. So because we know the genetic code, we can basically say, well, we know what the protein sequence is that's in the spider stickiness that we've washed off the web. So we can work out what gene sequences probably went into making those proteins. So if we then go back to the spider spinnerette, I guess, the structure that, that makes the silk, and ask can we find any genes like the, what we think the sequence will be in there, then you've got a chance of finding them. Right, and especially in this case, because all the glue comes from a specialized gland. So you can actually just go directly to that gland and not worry about uh, other kinds of genes because the predominant uh, genes that are being made or being used in that gland are going to be for the, the spider silk glue. And presumably the, the glue isn't just one particular protein. It must be a, a cocktail. In this case, uh, we believe it's two proteins, actually, and one of them looks like uh, more like a silk protein, uh, the regular silk proteins. The other one actually looks like what we call a mucin protein, which makes up slime uh, and snot. So our, uh, our combination is, is that it's really a silk and snot protein. And the two of them together provide both strength and stickiness. I think spiders would probably be mortified if they realised that uh, you were calling their web stickiness as snotty. Uh, but is it possible to do what the spider does in its back end in a test tube? In other words, can you borrow from biology? Can you copy this effectively? We're in the process of defining whether we can do that or not, but we believe we can because the proteins are actually very simple and we need to find a system that can reproduce that. And we believe that if we can get those genes into some insect cells that grow in culture, that those cells should be able to produce the proteins with the sticky uh, parts on them. Uh, the key here is, is that one of the proteins in particular has a whole lot of sugars put on it. And you need to be able to have those sugars we're fairly sure in order to be able to get the stickiness. So we believe that using something like insect cells to start with, we can reproduce what the spider has and, and then actually test the, the material and see how well it performs. And that's presumably because insect cells, evolutionarily speaking, are much closer to a spider than, say, one of our cells will be, and therefore they're likely to have the right chemistry going on in the cells to add those, those sticky sugar molecules. Right. And also it turns out that insect cells are fairly easy to work with, so we think that 
then inserting the, the genetic code from the spiders uh, also probably will fit better with the insect cells. And if you are successful in making this happen, what will you be able to do with this glue? Well, right now we're not exactly sure, but we think that there certainly are uh, possibility for some biomedical applications for closing uh, on sutures, uh, things like that, other places you might be able to uh, use glue. Um, we're also hopeful, and it remains to be seen, that you can use it something like epoxy, and that is that the two components separately won't, be, uh, won't give you the, the real stickiness and that when we put the two together, um, you'll have a glue, and that's also very useful in a number of applications so that you can, can basically put it together and then have it be sticky, and separately they're just fine. And lastly, Randy, I understand that you're currently heading across Canada to rescue some goats. What's that all about? Uh, well, basically, um, a company that we work with, Nexi Biotechnologies, developed some transgenic goats that make the spider silk proteins in the milk. And uh, the company has, uh, for all intents and purposes, gone under. And so we're uh, right now uh, about 20 miles from the farm. And this afternoon, we're going to go and prepare the goats. We'll pick them up tomorrow morning and bring them back to Wyoming so we can preserve the, uh, the genetics of those goats that, that have been, uh, been made because the company can't afford to keep them anymore. And uh, we're going to move them down to Wyoming and, and keep the genes going and, and uh, actually use the milk to produce uh, protein now where we can really get serious about looking at various kinds of products from it. And one wonders what that milk would taste like. Randy, thank you very much for joining us. And that's all we have for this Naked Scientist News Flash, which was produced by me, Ben Valsler, and featured Chris Smith, Helen Scales, and our guest, Dr. Randy Lewis from the University of Wyoming. As always, there's plenty more science available on our website and in our other podcasts. You can find them all on the web at thenakedscientists.com. We'll be back with another roundup of science news next week. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.